It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. I am your host, Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. Follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. Coming up in this week's episode... The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects by Edward J. Ruppelt, Chapter 11, Part 2. We could, I said, prove that all UFO reports were merely the misrepresentation of known objects if we made a few assumptions. At this point, one of the colonels on General Sanford's staff stopped me. Isn't it true, he asked, that if you make a few positive assumptions instead of negative assumptions, you can just as easily prove that the UFOs are interplanetary spaceships? Why, when you have to make an assumption to get an answer to a report, do you always pick the assumption that proves the UFOs don't exist? You could almost hear the colonel add, Okay, so now I've said it. For several months... The belief that Project Blue Book was taking a negative attitude, and the fact that the UFOs could be interplanetary spaceships had been growing in the Pentagon, but these ideas were usually discussed only in the privacy of offices with doors that would close tight. No one said anything, so the colonel who had broken the ice plunged in. He used the sighting from Goose Air Force Base where the fireball had buzzed the C-54 and sent the OD and his driver belly-whopping under the command car as an example. The colonel pointed out that even though we had labeled the report unknown, it wasn't accepted as proof. He wanted to know why. I said that our philosophy was that the fireball could have been two meteors, one that buzzed the C-54 and another that streaked across the airfield at Goose Air Force Base. Granted, a meteor doesn't come within feet of an airplane or make a 90-degree turn, but these could have been optical illusions of some kind. The crew of the C-54, the OD, his driver, and the tower operators didn't recognize the UFOs as meteors, because they were used to seeing the normal shooting stars that are most commonly seen. But the colonel had some more questions. What are the chances of having two extremely spectacular meteors in the same area, traveling the same direction only five minutes apart? I didn't know the exact mathematical probability, but it was rather small, I had to admit. Then he asked, What kind of an optical illusion would cause a meteor to appear to make a 90-degree turn? I had asked our Project Bear astronomer the same question, and he couldn't answer it either. So the only answer I could give the colonel was, I don't know. I felt as if I were on a witness stand being cross-examined, and that is exactly where I was, because the colonel cut loose. Why not assume a point that is more easily proved, he asked. Why not assume that the C-54 crew, the OD, his driver, and the tower operators did know what they were talking about? Maybe they had seen spectacular meteors during the hundreds of hours that they had flown at night, 
and the many nights that they had been on duty in the tower. Maybe the ball of fire had made a 90-degree turn. Maybe it was some kind of an intelligently controlled craft that had streaked northeast across the Gulf of St. Lawrence and Quebec province at 2,400 miles an hour. Why not just simply believe that most people know what they saw? the colonel said with no small amount of sarcasm in his voice. This last comment started a lively discussion, and I was able to retreat. The colonel had been right in a sense. We were being conservative, but maybe this was the right way to be. In any scientific investigation, you always assume that you don't have enough proof until you get a positive answer. I don't think that we had a positive answer yet. The colonel's comments split the group and a hot exchange of ideas, pros and cons, and insinuations that some people were imitating ostriches to keep from facing the truth followed. The outcome of the meeting was a directive to take further steps to obtain positive identification of the UFOs. Our original idea of attempting to get several separate reports from one sighting so we could use triangulation to measure speed, altitude, and size, wasn't working out. We had given the idea enough publicity, but reports where triangulation could be used were few and far between. Mr. or Mrs. Average Citizen just doesn't look up at the sky unless he or she sees a flash of light or hears a sound. Then, even if he or she does look up and sees a UFO, it is very seldom that the report ever gets to Project Blue Book. I think that it would be safe to say that Blue Book only heard about 10% of the UFOs that were seen in the United States. After the meeting, I went back to ATIC, and the next day, Colonel Don Bauer and I left for the West College to talk to some people about how to get better UFO data. We brought back the idea of using an extremely long focal length camera equipped with a diffraction grating. The cameras would be placed at various locations throughout the United States, where UFOs were most frequently seen. We hoped that photos of the UFOs taken through the diffraction gratings would give us some proof one way or the other. The diffraction gratings we planned to use over the lenses of the cameras were the same thing as prisms. They would split up the light from the UFO into its component parts so that we could study it and determine whether it was a meteor, an airplane, or balloon reflecting sunlight, etc., or we might be able to prove that the photographed UFO was a craft completely foreign to our knowledge. A red-hot A1 priority was placed on the camera project, and a section at ATIC that developed special equipment took over the job of obtaining the cameras, or if necessary, having them designed and built. But the UFOs weren't waiting around till they could be photographed. Every day, the tempo and confusion were increasing a little more. By the end of June, it was very noticeable that most of the better reports were coming from the eastern United States. In Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Maryland, 
Jet fighters had been scrambled almost nightly for a week. On three occasions, radar-equipped F-94s had locked on aerial targets only to have the lock-on broken by the apparent violent maneuvers of the target. By the end of June, there was also a lull in the newspaper publicity about the UFOs. The forthcoming political conventions had wiped out any mention of flying saucers. But on July 1st, there was a sudden outbreak of good reports. The first one came from Boston. Then they worked down the coast. About 7.25 on the morning of July 1st, two F-94s were scrambled to intercept a UFO that a Ground Observer Corps spotter reported was traveling southwest across Boston. Radar couldn't pick it up, so the two airplanes were just vectored into the general area. The F-94s searched the area but couldn't see anything. We got the report at ATIC and would have tossed it out if it hadn't been for other reports from the Boston area at that same time. One of these reports came from a man and his wife at Lynn, Massachusetts, nine miles northeast of Boston. At 7.30 they had noticed the two vapor trails from the climbing jet interceptors. They looked around the sky to find out if they could see what the jets were after, and off to the west they saw a bright silver cigar-shaped object, about six times as long as it was wide, traveling southwest across Boston. It appeared to be traveling just a little faster than the two jets. As they watched, they saw that an identical UFO was following the first one some distance back. The UFOs weren't leaving vapor trails, but... As the man mentioned in his report, this didn't mean anything because you can get above the vapor trail level, and the two UFOs appeared to be at a very high altitude. The two observers watched as the two F-94s searched back and forth far below the UFOs. Then there was another report, also made at 7.30. An Air Force captain was just leaving his home in Bedford, about 15 miles northwest of Boston and straight west of Lynn, when he saw the two jets. In his report, he said that he, too, had looked around the sky to see if he could see what they were trying to intercept when off to the east, he saw a silvery cigar-shaped object traveling south. His description of what he observed was almost identical to what the couple in Lynn reported, except that he saw only one UFO. When we received the report, I wanted to send someone up to Boston immediately in the hope of getting more data from the civilian couple and the Air Force captain. This seemed to be a tailor-made case for triangulation. But by July 1st, we were completely snowed under with reports, and there just wasn't anybody to send. Then, to complicate matters, other reports came in later in the day. Just two hours after the sighting in the Boston area, Fort Monmouth, New Jersey popped back into UFO history. At 9.30 in the morning, 12 student radar operators and three instructors were tracking nine jets on an SCR-584 radar set 
when two UFO targets appeared on the scope. The two targets came in from the northeast at a slow speed, much slower than the jets that were being tracked, hovered near Fort Monmouth at 50,000 feet for about five minutes, and then took off in a terrific burst of speed to the southwest. When the targets first appeared, some of the class went outside with an instructor, and after searching the sky for about a minute, they saw two shiny objects in the same location as the radar showed the two unidentified targets to be. They watched the two UFOs for several minutes and saw them go zipping off to the southwest at exactly the same time that the two radar targets moved off the scope in that direction. We had plotted these reports, the ones from Boston and the one from Fort Monmouth on a map, and without injecting any imagination or wild assumptions, it looked as if two somethings had come down across Boston on a southwesterly heading, crossed Long Island, hovered for a few minutes over the Army's secret laboratories at Fort Monmouth, then proceeded toward Washington, in a way we half expected to get a report from Washington. Our expectations were rewarded, because in a few hours a report arrived from that city. A physics professor at George Washington University reported a dull, gray, smoky-colored object which hovered north-northwest of a Washington for about eight minutes. Every once in a while, the professor reported it would move through an arc of about 15 degrees to the right or left, but it always returned to its original position. While he was watching the UFO, he took a 25-cent piece out of his pocket and held it at arm's length so that he could compare its size to that of the UFO. The UFO was about half the diameter of the quarter. When he first saw the UFO, it was about 30 to 40 degrees above the horizon. But during the eight minutes it was in sight, it steadily dropped lower and lower until buildings in downtown Washington blocked off the view. Besides being an unknown, this report was exceptionally interesting to us because the sighting was made from the center of downtown Washington, D.C. The professor reported that he had noticed the UFO when he saw people all along the street looking up in the air and pointing. He estimated that at least 500 people were looking at it, yet his was the only report we received. This seemed to substantiate our theory that people are very hesitant to report UFOs to the Air Force. But they evidently do tell the newspapers, because later on we picked up a short account of the sighting in the Washington papers. It merely said that hundreds of calls had been received from the people reporting a UFO. When reports were pouring in at the rate of 20 or 30 a day, we were glad that people were hesitant to report UFOs, but when we were trying to find the answer to a really naughty sighting, we always wished that more people had reported it. The old adage of having your cake and eating it too held even for the UFO. Technically, no one in Washington, besides, of course, Major General Samford and his superiors, 
had anything to do with making policy decisions about the operation of Project Blue Book or the handling of the UFO situation in general. Nevertheless, everyone was trying to get into the act. The split in opinions on what to do about the rising tide of UFO reports, the split that first came out in the open at General Samford's briefing, was widening every day. One group was getting dead serious about the situation. They thought we now had plenty of evidence to back up an official statement that the UFOs were something real and, to be specific, not something from this earth. This group wanted Project Blue Book to quit spending time investigating reports from the standpoint of trying to determine if the observer of a UFO had actually seen something foreign to our knowledge and start assuming that he or she had. They wanted me to aim my investigation at trying to find out more about the UFO. Along with this switch in operating policy, they wanted to clamp down on the release of information. They thought that the security classification of the project should go up to top secret until we had all of the answers. Then the information should be released to the public. The investigation of UFOs along these lines should be a maximum effort, they thought, and their plans called for lining up many top scientists to devote their full time to the project. Someone once said that enthusiasm is infectious, and he was right. The enthusiasm of this group took a firm hold in the Pentagon, at Air Defense Command Headquarters, on the Research and Development Board, and many other agencies throughout the government. But General Samford was still giving the orders, and he said to continue to operate just as we had, keeping an open mind to any ideas. After the minor flurry of reports on July 1st, we had a short breathing spell and found time to clean up a sizable backlog of reports. People were still seeing UFOs, but the frequency of sighting curve was dropping steadily. During the first few days of July, we were getting only two or three good reports a day. On July 5, the crew of a non-scheduled airliner made page two of many newspapers by reporting a UFO over the AEC's super-secret Hanford, Washington installation. It was a skyhook balloon. On the 12th, a huge meteor sliced across Indiana, southern Illinois, and Missouri that netted us 20 or 30 reports. Even before they had stopped coming in, we had confirmation from our astronomer that the UFO was a meteor. But 42 minutes later, there was a sighting in Chicago that wasn't so easily explained. According to our weather records, on the night of July 12th, it was hot in Chicago. At 9.42, there were at least 400 people at Montrose Beach trying to beat the heat. Many of them were lying down looking at the stars, so that they saw the UFO as it came in from the west-northwest, made a 180-degree turn directly over their heads, and disappeared over the horizon. It was a large red light with small white lights on the side. Most of the people reported, 
Some of them said that it changed to a single yellow light as it made its turn. It was in sight about five minutes, and during this time, no one reported hearing any sound. One of the people at the beach was the weather officer from O'Hare International Airport, an Air Force captain. He immediately called O'Hare. They checked on balloon flights and with radar, but both were negative. Radar said that there had been no aircraft in the area of Montrose Beach for several hours. I sent an investigator to Chicago, and although he came back with a lot of data on the sighting, it didn't add up to be anything known. The next day, Dayton had its first UFO sighting in a long time, when a Mr. Roy T. Ellis, president of the Rubber Seal Products Company, and many other people reported a teardrop-shaped object that hovered over Dayton for several minutes about midnight. This sighting had an interesting twist, because two years later I was in Dayton and stopped in at ATIC to see a friend who was one of the technical advisors at the center. Naturally, the conversation got around to the subject of UFOs, and he asked me if I remembered this specific sighting. I did, so he went on to say that he and his wife had seen this UFO that night, but they had never told anybody. He was very serious when he admitted that he had no idea what it could have been. Now, I'd heard this statement a thousand times before from other people, but coming from this person, it was really something because he was as anti-saucer as anyone I knew. Then he added, From that time on, I didn't think your saucer reporters were as crazy as I used to think they were. The Dayton sighting also created quite a stir in the press. In conjunction with the sighting, the Dayton Daily Journal had interviewed Colonel Richard H. Maggie, the Dayton Oakwood Civil Defense Director, they wanted to know what he thought about the UFOs. The colonel's answer made news. There's something flying around in our skies, and we wish we knew what it was. When the story broke in other papers, the colonel's affiliation with civil defense wasn't mentioned, and he became merely a colonel from Dayton. Dayton was quickly construed by the public to mean Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and specifically ATIC. Some people in the Pentagon screamed, while others gleefully clapped their hands. The gleeful handclaps were from those people who wanted the UFOs to be socially recognized, and they believed that if they couldn't talk their ideas into being, they might be able to force them in with the help of this type of publicity. The temporary lull in reporting that Project Blue Book had experienced in early July proved to be only the calm before the storm. By mid-July, we were getting about 20 reports a day, plus frantic calls from intelligence officers all over the United States, as every Air Force installation in the U.S. was being swamped with reports. We told the intelligence officers to send in the ones that sounded the best. The buildup in UFO reports wasn't limited to the United States. Every day we would receive reports from our air attaches in other countries. 
England and France led the field, with the South American countries running a close third. Needless to say, we didn't investigate or evaluate foreign reports because we had our hands full right at home. Most of us were putting in 14 hours a day, six days a week. It wasn't at all uncommon for Lieutenant Andy Flues, Bob Olson, or Carrie Rothstein, my investigators, to get their sleep on an airliner going out or coming back from an investigation. TWA airliners out of Dayton were more like home than home, but we hadn't seen anything yet. All the reports that were coming in were good ones, ones with no answers. Unknowns were running about 40%. Rumors persist that in mid-July 1952, the Air Force was braced for an expected invasion by flying saucers. Had these rumor mongers been at ATIC in mid-July, they would have thought that the invasion was already in full swing. And they would have thought that one of the beachheads for the invasion was Patrick Air Force Base, the Air Force's guided missile long-range proving ground on the east coast of Florida. On the night of July 18, at 10.45, two officers were standing in front of base operations at Patrick when they noticed a light at about a 45-degree angle from the horizon and off to the west. It was an amber color and quite a bit brighter than a star. Both officers had heard flying saucer stories and both thought the light was a balloon. But, to be comedians, they called to several more officers and airmen inside the operations office and told them to come out and see the flying saucer. The people came out and looked. A few were surprised and took the mysterious light seriously at the expense of considerable laughter from the rest of the group. The discussion about the light grew livelier and bets that it was a balloon were placed. In the meantime, the light had drifted over the base, had stopped for about a minute, turned, and was now heading north. To settle the bet, one of the officers stepped into the base weather office to find out about the balloon. Yes, one was in the air and being tracked by radar, he was told. The weather officer said that he would call to find out exactly where it was. He called and found out that the weather balloon was being tracked due west of the base and that the light had gone out about ten minutes before. The officer went back outside to find that what was first thought to be a balloon was now straight north of the field and still lighted. To add to the confusion, a second amber light had appeared in the west about 20 degrees lower than where the first one was initially seen, and it was also heading north but at a much greater speed. In a few seconds, the first light stopped and started moving back south over the base. While the group of officers and airmen were watching the two lights, the people from the weather office came out to tell the UFO observers that the balloon was still traveling straight west. They were just in time to see a third light come tearing across the sky, directly overhead, from west to east. A weatherman went inside and called the balloon tracking crew again. Their balloon was still far to the west of the base. Inside of 15 minutes, two more amber lights came in, 
from the west, crossed the base, made a 180-degree turn over the ocean, and came back over the observers. In the midst of the melee, a radar set had been turned on, but it couldn't pick up any targets. This did, however, eliminate the possibility of the lights being aircraft. They weren't stray balloons either, because the winds at all altitudes were blowing in a westerly direction. They obviously weren't meteors. They weren't searchlights on a haze layer because there was no weather conductive to forming a haze layer and there were no searchlights. They could have been some type of natural phenomenon if one desires to take the negative approach. Or if you take the positive approach, they could have been spaceships. The next night, radar at Washington National Airport picked up UFOs and one of the most highly publicized sightings of UFO history was in the making. It marked the beginning of the end of the Big Flap. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for Chapter 12, The Washington Merry-Go-Round. Follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, alienconpod at protonmail.com.